Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sean Duffy, CEO and co-founder of Amada Health, a virtual-first chronic care provider that's raised nearly $500 million in funding. Sean, thanks for chatting with me today. Happy to be here, Brent. Thank you much. Not a problem. So to begin this conversation, can we just maybe start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. So hi, everybody. So I'm Sean Duffy. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Amada Health. Background is a mix of tech and medicine, so studied neuroscience in undergrad, Graduated in 2006, which was just a remarkable moment in Silicon Valley history. So uh, though I did my pre-med recs, got a bit by the tech bug and ended up working at Google for a couple of years and then um, realized that the world weren't so black and white. So went off to medical school, enrolled in uh, Harvard's MD, MBA program and ended up starting uh, the company while on that. What was that like working at Google back in 2007? Yeah, I mean, that was a wild time in Silicon Valley. I mean, you know, for the tech founders who were around back then, that was a moment where interactive web apps, you know, became real for the masses. So instead of having to click on the edges of MapQuest, you could drag. And so I joined Google at 6,000 employees, which, you know, was, of course, not early days, but still, you know, a lot was evolving and it was just um, absolute chaos in the best of ways. Yeah, I can imagine. And what about MedGadget? You had a career as a journalist there for a little bit, it looks like as well. You know, it's funny, that was a little side hustle. Like I uh, always loved medicine. I always loved technology. There was a blog called MedGadget that I just admired. And just one day asked, just because I studied the space so much, if I could write for them. And they said yes. And uh, it was neat. I mean, it allowed me to cover a lot of great conferences. Uh, I kind of got a little side money for doing what I love to do anyway, and had a lot of fun with that, uh, you know, alongside nights and weekends. Nice. That's awesome. What about founders who inspire you? So I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of different founders that have inspired you in different ways, but if we had to pick one that's been very meaningful for you, who would that be? And what what did they do to inspire you? What do they do that inspires you? You know, it's interesting. You know, I, don't, I guess Reed Hastings from Netflix has always been some of a role model that I'd like love to sit down and meet uh, for so many reasons. One, um, just extraordinarily articulate. I mean, you listen to Reed on a panel and you just want to soak up every single word of his. And then the whole Netflix content that was just, such a bold move uh, and such a long, you know, long move, you know, as a business and just, um, and then they had to transition from a legacy business model of DVDs to streaming, which so irregularly actually pans out that a company can do that. So uh, yeah, I put him at the, uh, the top of the list. It's crazy how far they've come on their content strategy in the last like decade. I remember when House of Cards came out, I think yeah. House of Cards was like their first content play. And now you look at Netflix and like, I can't even keep up with all the shows that are coming out. Yeah. They really doubled down. And I think they got a lot of criticism early on too, that these efforts were going to fail, but. Well, well they had, yeah, I mean, they had an activism. So this, this is public and Reed will share this on panels, but they had a Carl Icahn start to pick up a bunch of shares in Netflix while they were public. And that's kind of the last thing you want to see as a CEO of a public company. And uh, Reed brought Carl out and was like, look, I know you don't like this content strategy, but just watch House of Cards, like watch the first season and like brought him out sat him down, said, enjoy. And at the end of the day, like that's what settled Carl. He's like, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm out. I'll, I'll sell my shares. I'm not going to try to like force you into a decision that uh, that is counter to your goals. 
Carl Icahn is a scary, scary man. I've watched uh, I watched this documentary that came out recently, uh-huh. and I think they had like the artwork he has in his office. It's like people getting like decapitated in like battles and stuff like that. I can't imagine being in that type of dynamic. I don't know what I think myself. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> what about books? And the way we like to frame this, this comes from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? Oh man, that's interesting. It's just, it's trite, but The Martian, it's just so good. What I love about it is just, it's such an example of thinking through a problem analytically that I think I've read that like four or five times and just absolutely love it. Is that, did they make a movie based on that? That's right. They did. Yep. Yep. But now it's called The Martian. Mm-hmm. Well, by, uh, the book is Andy Ware, W-D-I-R. Nice. I love that movie. So I'll have to go back and read the book. And oh, yes, experience. The books are always way better than the movies anyways. So excited to know that's the thing. Yeah, that's what it is. Let's switch gears now. Let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So how we like to begin this portion of the interview is really focusing on the problem. So what, what problem are you solving? I mean, really fundamentally, it's the problem of horror health outcomes for the country every single year that goes by. So um, Omada is a virtual care provider. The care areas where we support our members are pre-diabetes or weight diabetes, hypertension, musculoskeletal disease. And all of these are uh, disease areas where it's just so clear that, you know, walking into your primary care physician's office every six months is really not going to cut it. Take us back to 2011 when you first founded the company. What were those early days like? And, and how did you decide that this is what you're going to build a company around? Yeah. So after uh, my time at Google, I went to medical school. It was a, Harvard has an MD, MBA program. They ask as you progress through it that you take an internship that blends business and medicine. So I'd done some uh, some of the folks at IDEA, the design firm, and came out there. And the company happened while well there, a little bit by accident. The state of digital health back then, which was 2011, was really new. It was a world where the step trackers were just coming on the scenes. You know, you had Fitbit, et cetera, appearing. And I'd be with my tech friends, and they'd see so much promise in these tools. And then I'd do with my medical school classmates who weren't opposed, but were skeptical and would ask, well, what, what conditions are you trying to target with these? What is the evidence? And so really it became the question that we kept asking, which was just, you know, how, how could you build a more evidence-based digital health company that really brought the best of design of technology to the healthcare world in a way that, you know, could earn credibility. And so that led to thinking, well, what are the care areas where digital is not just incrementally better, but transformationally better. And so got, got kind of our start in, in metabolic disease and decided to, to work to build an enterprise healthcare business uh, on the back of that idea. How long did it take in the journey for you to really start to feel like you had product market fit and, and feel like things were working? Was it three months? Was it three years? Like how long did that take? I mean, three or four years. And it's interesting because enterprise sales in healthcare are, the sales are very long. And, you know, I mean, this is true in enterprise software generally, but the issue with that is you may have done something really, really right and you kind of feel it, but you don't see it in the numbers and the traction for a while. And so, you know, I remember, my gosh, we, we at Omada, I mean, we've just recently crossed 1 million, you know, members uh, that we've supported, you know, in, in a company, which is in our space, you know, extraordinarily scaled. Yet it took so many years to get to that first thousand. So it's very, um, it can be kind of a vexing place to start a business with a ton of tripwires. Um, it is one of those where founders that have lived it uh, you know, are always happy to help because they know what they had to go through. So that there's a nice community here, but it's um it's a tricky place to build a business. When did you get your first paying customer? Um, good question. I think it was probably three three years after incorporation, and I think our first one was a health plan called HealthNet, and they they had written us into this uh you know really large contract of theirs. And I remember sitting down with this chief medical officer of HealthNet. He's, he came over to where we work, 
And he says, you know, Sean, you know, look where we are. I'm writing you into a five-year contract. What gives me any confidence you're going to be here in five years? And, you know, it's one of those funny moments as a founder. I think I said, look, we're backed by great investors that have plenty of either capital. But what I wanted to say is if you sign this contract, I will be here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a lot of chicken and the egg moments uh, in, in, uh, in this sort of business. Yeah, I can imagine. What would you say has been the hardest point or hardest thing that you've experienced so far in building the company? And the reason I ask is I see that being a tech founder is really kind of glamorized in the media and you hear about the good stories. And when I Google the model health, I find all these awesome media articles, the unicorn valuation, all the good stuff. What's maybe some of the, the hard stuff or some of those stories that haven't been told yet that highlight some of that pain you went through in those early years? Well, you know, it's interesting. You, you, when you build an enterprise healthcare business, you have to grow Zen with some of just the true realities of the space. You know, the sales cycles are long, the regulatory environment is complex. So it's, um, there's these things you're just like, wow, we're literally talking about a deployment three years from now today that always just feel vexing. I would say, um, you know, one of the harder moments was many, many years back, we ended up taking our trials to the American Medical Association and we, we got them to issue the first ever digital specific CPT code which the way that you can think of that if you're not from healthcare and listening is just infrastructure for billing. It's kind of a place where you can send your bills. And one of our national you know, partners, they had to fix their claim systems to be able to process a CPT code that had a letter in it. Because you know these were just historical systems written in COBOL. And that you know, was a multi-million dollar investment. It was going to take a year. And meanwhile, we couldn't deploy with any of their clients until you know, that went live. And you know, a, a year in the world of a, a health plan, it's not a long time, a year in the world of a startup where you're actually prevented from a huge piece of your business growing is an extraordinary amount of time. So that was uh, one of those tough moments where you just kind of gritted your teeth and, and powered through it. But um, you know, thankfully, uh, all ended uh, very well. Did you have to deal with any other critics early on that just didn't believe in your vision and, and how you were thinking about solving this problem? We would go to these health plans and kind of share, look, we're a virtual provider, you know, just like any other provider, but we don't have offices. And and that took a while for them to understand that that was a thing that could exist. And so, you know, you'd be talking to their network teams and they'd share, well, well this is interesting. So where are your clinics again? And you have to kind of repeat the message. So we were quite early in, you know, digital health and, and virtual care generally. And, you know, I, I honestly think the entire you know, decade plus of Amada is really that scene in Apollo 13 where you're trying to, you know, fit that square CO2 cartridge into the round hole because nothing about the infrastructure that's been laid in the healthcare system is tailor fit for new technological innovations. You have to get super, super creative to, to power a go to market. When it comes to your messaging and positioning, how have you seen that evolve over time? You know, it's funny, that's been pretty consistent. Like if you were to read the original brief that, you know, an idea that turned into the company, it'd be pretty consistent. Now, when I'm speaking on behalf of Amada, you know, I describe ourselves as a between visit care provider, you know, because that framing tends to work with our constituents. I think everybody intuitively knows that, you know, look, you're not going to get anywhere to support someone with diabetes by saying, hey, take your meds, lose some weight, come back in six months. You know, you really need dedicated, persistent, empathetic, proactive support mixed with technology to really influence outcomes. Can you share any numbers that just demonstrate the scale that you're operating at today? Yeah. So we, I mean, we have about, uh, what, 1900 employers and health plans that we work with. So these are, you know, our primary go-to-market is saying hi to self-insured employers. And that turns into work with health plans as well. You know, that, that's how we reached 1 million cumulative uh, members enrolled. 
And um, about one in 10 adults that are commercially insured in the US have like an Omada product as part of their medical policy in, in some capacity. Wow. How would you describe your marketing philosophy overall? At Omada, I mean, we rest on earning trust. And I think that that's critical to our marketing philosophy. It's not, um, we're not the company that will put out statements that aren't you know, backed by credible evidence. We've invested many, many millions of dollars in publishing peer-reviewed research. You know, when we talk about, you know, AI and ML, it's, you know, on substantive work that we've actually created. So I think there's this, um, Omada is known for thoughtfulness and authenticity in the market. And I think that that, you know, one can take many marketing approaches. I think in healthcare in particular, there are probably ways to, you know, perhaps try to optimize or, you know, hack growth differently. But we think that this is kind of the long game, you know, lasting company uh, marketing approach. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. If you reflect on all of the success you've had, what do you think you've gotten right? I'm sure there's a long list of things you've gotten right, probably a few things you've gotten wrong, but if we had to isolate, you know, one, two, three things, what have you really gotten right? You know, publishing studies was a good decision. We, we didn't know that necessarily at the time. I just intuited that my friends at medical school would never trust our solutions unless we actually put out the proof that they worked in peer review. Uh, so that turned out to be an investment that, that kind of, you know, pays dividends, you know, which is good. And then it, to be honest, most importantly is just um, staying determined. I mean, the, uh, you know, the adage that at the end of the day, you ask, you know, successful, you know, the companies that would from the surface look like overnight successes. You ask their founders and their exec teams, you know, what was it? It's um, usually the answer like, well, we didn't give up, you know, but just because, you know, when you're building anything, you're fighting gravity and you're creating a world that could exist, but doesn't. And that by definition is hard. Uh, healthcare, it's doubly hard because you're operating within some realities and some constraints and some complexities that make that especially tricky. And we've just uh, stayed pretty dogged. You know, anytime um, we faced a challenge, we just kind of looked at it, studied it, and, and tried to unpack it and, and power through. Do you have a superpower? I love to learn. And I'm like, I think I'm just like, super curious. Like I can't, it's almost compulsive. So um, that actually works well in enterprise healthcare because I would find early on if I actually, instead of just you know, looking at summaries of, I don't know, something like the FDA regs for mobile health. If I just read the actual regulations, you could quickly ramp to like, you know, 99% of market percentile of market relative to like who understood those. And so like that, that I think in our market tends to be something that has a lot of utility. If we look at the business today, what keeps you up at night? You know, if you're sitting there laying in bed, unable to sleep, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you worrying about? Well, so, you know, we operate in pre-diabetes and weight and, you know, and diabetes and hypertension. And so a lot of my energy over the last, you know, couple of years has been on this GLP-1 landscape. So those even, I'm sure in the tech community listening, have heard of Ozempic and, you know, it's a very complex landscape to manage. There are significantly more tailwinds than headwinds for Omada here in that there's a recognition that you should couple a program like Omada alongside these meds. You know, but it's one where it just, it seems like such an incredible opportunity. I just need to make sure the organization you know, seizes this in the right way and, and, and don't want to, don't want to miss it. So that's what I'm thinking about a lot recently. 
Early on in the back of your mind, did you have this idea that this was going to become a, a unicorn company and it was going to reach the scale that it's achieved? Like, was that the intention or do you feel like you almost stumbled into it and all of a sudden you wake up and wow, we have a big, big company here? You know, it's funny because I think of Omada as little still, you know, I mean, we're scaled and we're known quantity in the space and, you know, we're celebrated for our scale, but it's funny. We, I mean, we've enrolled a million people. That's great, but it's an absolute drop in the bucket relative to the scale of diabetes, of metabolic disease in the country. So, um, you know, we, we feel pretty hungry to add another zero to that. And then from there, you know, go to the many tens. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel big. I don't know. My ambitions have always, I like to create businesses and I want the Omada to have you know, do enormously well financially, but have just a positive societal contribution. So, um, weirdly, whenever I'm at a town hall and there's hundreds of people or like, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, you built a billion dollar business. I don't, that almost gives me more nerves than, than like excitement. I'm like, well, let, all right, whatever, ignore that. Let's just like take the next chapter and get more people and, and sell more customers. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, I don't know, but it, but it is neat. I mean, you know, my, my friends from high school will come into our office, but, oh my gosh, like you, the Yahoo that I once knew has built what seems to be a, a proper company here, which is always fun. Was that a meaningful day for you at all? You got that term sheet, signed it, and knew that it was going to be a billion-dollar company. Like, did that matter to you, or is that just sign the docs and another no, day? It's fine. I kind of like I didn't. I genuinely didn't care. We've taken an approach of ensuring that we have you know a very fair price for the business, but um, you know, I call it kind of upper side of normal on the back of a blog post that I'd written. I, I had seen friends who tried to absolutely optimize for valuation. Just that turned out to absolutely, oh, like, frankly, it was kill their companies. Because if you get way ahead of your skis, if anything goes wrong, you're in trouble. So we were very fairly valued. But it's funny when we announced that some of the press at that time was like, oh, wait, wait, I, we don't know your revenue, but we know you're way bigger than XYZ company. That's like 2 billion or 3 billion. And we picked incredible investors that were not quite as willing to write those nosebleed checks. So I didn't, I felt that best position the company, but I genuinely, the only reason I cared is because it felt that it would probably attract more attention to the business, which might like further customers and, you know, enable growth in some way. But um, it wasn't something I was like, oh, yay. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's all on paper anyway, until there's an actual, you know, either in, on, on the public markets at North of a billion or your you exit in, in a cash acquisition that's North of a billion. What other founders have told me who built unicorn companies is they say that there's you know some downsides there. Um, first one is sometimes it can become a, a distraction for the team where they start you know thinking about valuation more and they almost become a bit cocky, I guess you could say. And the other downside they've talked about is this idea that you go from you know, being a startup without uh, FU money, for lack of a better description, and all of a sudden you have a big cash injection and that changes things because you're not as hungry anymore and you're just you know, operating where you have a lot more resources. Have those been challenges that you've had to deal with as well? I mean, yeah, there, you'll always have that. I think the, and, and I think the best public companies deal with this too. Like you can just refocus the company on the key things that actually at the end of the day build shareholder value, you know, which is making sure that you're best in class from a competitive standpoint, always listening to your customers, you know, caring if it's working, the solution's working, listening to your members and, and kind of staying true to first principles. So, you know, in any round, I always take the opportunity internally to help remind the organization that, you know, to be honest, a fundraising milestone literally just allows you to accomplish what you want to accomplish. It's not, if anything, businesses should be celebrated for not having to raise any capital and still reaching scale you know, counterintuitively. So the, you know, I think it's actually important culturally to make sure that folks don't get too excited celebrating any fundraise versus as just kind of a, a part of what you need to do to, you know, create huge value for your customers and in turn, huge value for your shareholders. 
So I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised nearly 500 million. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this process? You know, I didn't, when founding the company, know anything about the venture capital stack. I mean, I was, I mean, I was really great. I hadn't hired anybody. Mod is essentially my first job. I mean, I worked at Google as an individual contributor, but it's a very, very different scale and role. Um, the number one rule is make sure you just understand how a fund works and empathize with the life of an average general partner, like, you know, who are their customers? How are their fund structures? What are their incentives? How do they socially progress a deal? Like put your head in their heads and that'll enable you to be the most successful. And, you know, fortunately I had a lot of VC friends or made a lot of VC friends, you know, in the early days of Omada and just asked them, you know, a million questions about what, what is life like when you work at a venture capitalist? Because when you do that as an entrepreneur, you can make sure that A, you're not duped with a false promise. Oh my gosh, I got invited to that second meeting, you know, from Sequoia, here comes a term sheet, you know, and also, you know, you know how they think about businesses, you know, what, you know, questions they're likely as a partnership going to be asking. And that enables your success at the end of the day. Based on the entire company building journey so far, if you were to start again today from scratch, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? If you have long sales cycles, in the early days, really put extra energy in op- optimizing pricing. And this is something that it just sounds, it can fall down the list on priorities. We're like, oh, well, yeah, I'll optimize pricing later. But the challenge is some of these contracts hang with you forever and you have to really find creative ways to you know change the shape of your pricing. So I think you know, pricing and how you price and package, if you're an enterprise business with long sales cycles, is kind of something you should do way, way earlier than I recognized uh, you know at the time. We got there. It just, you know, I would probably like put a pricing project in like year two or three of the business, you know, versus a five or six. Now you're almost 13 years into the journey. What do you do to stay motivated and, and focused and, and excited about the business? Because what I've seen and heard from my conversations with founders is founders often have very short attention spans. They can go for, you know, four or five years, but you're a decade plus so far. What do you do to you know, maintain that momentum and yes, be just as excited today as you were back in 2011 when you were starting the company? Yeah, there's well, there's the personal side and then there's the the impact side. You know, on on the personal side, you know, though I've been the CEO of Omada from day one, it's been many many different roles. So I actually think that you're like your two to three year adage kind of rings true. But every couple of years, the CEO role has been so different. And you know, I always look back on last year's Sean and feel a little bit embarrassed. And so as long as you know, I mean, as long as that continues from a, you know, professional, you know, L&D standpoint and just a, you know, satisfying, you know, my curiosity about business and my personal professional growth, you know, I'm kind of there and then I'm, and continue to be there. And I, and then on the impact side, again, for the comments, it's a critique that Omada has a spotlight. I mean, that's, that's a critique on how good as a country we've been at managing metabolic disease. Ticket of entry for, you know, being on a podcast should be, you know, tens of millions of patients and members supported. And, you know, that's just, you know, not the case yet for us. So we got to keep running. And then um, we're at enough scale where, you know, instead of finding a way to take advantage of, say, a tailwind like a GLP-1 or the Ozempics, you know, you genuinely feel like you're actually shaping the direction of how these medicines will be utilized for the country. So it's this neat purview where you have kind of agency to create change that you could have never had unless you had sufficient scale to create the right you know, momentum around it. So it's a, it's a, it's a super fun moment in the business. And I think, you know, I've never been more excited about where we're headed. What CEO evolution was the most difficult for you, would you say? You know, I think there's one where you just have to grow comfort with having trouble finding the right words, but it's almost like not doing IC work because sometimes if you do, it actually causes problems. 
so you know there's a good like you know thing that if you find that wow you're working on that deck and you know or like you're there there are some exceptions of course but it's like it means you've not built the organizational capability so that that evolution is really hard and that that's one that you know is a transition point that i think many you know ceos go through and then you your role evolves into a you know making sure that in some capacity you know you have a strategy you don't have to be the one that you know necessarily developed every single bit of it but that the company feels that the company has a strategy you know two there are goals specific goals that your leaders have accountabilities against to execute against that strategy both from a near and a long-term basis and then you know culture and communications and values and all the you know the softer side all you know of course all, all of those are overlaid with making sure that you are you know better than anybody understand the company's PL, the unit economics the financial profile or make sure that you've got a path to just being a thriving business so um and none of those necessarily involve what I used to do when I founded the business, which was, you know, like get in and be our bookkeeper and build models and, you know, edit the Photoshop designs and all the uh, all the stuff that when you don't have resources, you end up having to do. And that's, that's, that is a, it's a very, it's actually helpful, I found to say, look, you know, you're not the founder of Ramada, you're a hired gun CEO. Imagine, imagine that each year, like, what would you do? What would you do differently? And that perspective actually tends to be helpful relative to how you think about the business. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I can see how that perspective is very helpful. Final question for you here before we wrap up. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? You know, our success for us three to five years out would be doing what we do just at significantly more scale. So many, many more millions, more and more people are covered. There will always keep an open mind. We feel good about the condition area that we're in relative to what our customers want us to do. And so now it's just about, all right, let's just quickly reach scale and impact, you know, as we possibly can, because there's a lot of impact to be had, uh, had in these areas. So, you know, success, I think over the next three to five is just, you know, uh, frankly, business as usual, but, but with significantly more scale and of course, all sorts of like neat innovation that helps with that along the way. Amazing. I love the vision. All right, Sean, we're up on time. So we'll have to wrap here before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and just want to follow along with your company building journey, where should they go? I mean, if you need help, just email me. My email is just Sean, S-E-A-N, uh, at AlmadaHealth.com. I, you know, I tend to try to be purposely you know, pretty accessible because I know a lot of people um, did that for me uh, in the early days. And then just uh, you know, keep a look at our, uh, at our website for, uh, or LinkedIn for any, any of the company updates. Amazing. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. You got it, Brett. Thanks for having me on. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.